apartment in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, I'm Adam Teeter. From my apartment in Jersey City, I'm Erica Ducey. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And Zach, like, you're so weird in Seattle, Washington. Like, where are you, man? Are you in a garage? <laughs> are you in your bedroom? Are you in your kid's room? <laughs> like, where are in, you? In my in my den in Ballard, uh, I'm Zach Jabal. Just hanging out, <laughs> hanging out here with uh, yeah, a bunch of kids' toys and uh, a basketball that probably isn't going to get any use for a while. Oh man! So we are all working from home for obvious reasons, uh, but still keeping the podcast going. Um, obviously, this is a podcast we're recording on Wednesday, March 18th, with the goal of getting this up for everyone to hear tomorrow, uh, March 19th. Um, just because of the state of what's happening in the industry, we're going to try to put these out a lot more often. In addition, uh, we will be putting out through the same feed, uh, individual conversations with restaurant owners, bar owners, winemakers, distillers, brewers, um, led by either myself, Erica or Zach, uh, over the next few weeks to hear how they're dealing with, uh, life in in the time of corona sort of how they're adapting and these conversations are both to hear what they're up to but also to hopefully inspire and connect us all um i think when we all understand that we're all going through this together it makes the situations we're dealing with more palatable and we can sort of start to see a path forward and so that's our goal with these conversations hopefully the next one will come out the first one will come out early next week so please be on the lookout for that and support that as well um but uh, without further ado, let's let's jump into this this week's uh, podcast. So first, I guess Erica, Zach, how are you guys coping? How are you doing? Um, and and are you taking your our our advice from the last podcast in terms of making drinks at home and, and just trying to to be centered as much as possible? I'd say yes. I have upped my flask game with Manhattan's. So <laughs> I mean, really, the only place that I can go these days is uh, the park, Liberty State Park, which you know overlooks the city, overlooks the Liberty, um, all this uh, overlooks the Statue of Liberty, um, and you can go there. You can have a Manhattan, and it's uh, a really nice way to get away from some of the stress. But uh, I'd also say, you know, right now sitting in front of me, I've got a bottle of Pais, which is a light-bodied red that's been made in Chile for centuries. And uh, recently, uh, winemakers have kind of rediscovered this grape and are making some really cool wines out of it. So uh, I've got this wine from the Garage Wine Company. uh, And the founder of this uh, estate, a small estate, he um, runs Movi, which is Chile's Association of Independent Wine Growers. And so it's a very cool, small uh, wine company to follow. And this is such a crushable spring red. It's it's uh, fresh and clean and floral and savory, soft tannin. So um, I think, you know, a wine like this is giving me a little bit of relief as well. I think you're like you're first of all, I love the idea of Erica in a park with her kids while she's swigging from a Manhattan in a flask. I think that's awesome. Uh, <laughs> and second, <laughs> you definitely have become, I think, like the unofficial spokesman for Pais, which they should start paying you. Um, I mean, I love Pais. Like how how was it overlooked in these big agricultural jug wines for so long? It's amazing. I gotta tell you, it's it's unfortunate to to be the guy who says this. One of the single worst wines I've ever had in my life was made from Pais. I've also had some good ones, to be fair. But I had a I had a rosé relatively recently, and and I this never almost never happens with me. But I actually tasted it, and I was like, I can't believe someone actually like put this in a bottle, sealed it, and sold it, and felt good about it. It was so 
it was just part of it was i think it was it was made from it was a sort of like i think it was one of these wines of like um philosophy more than quality and it was like these wild pais vines that had grown like out of control and someone sort of picked them and and essentially did nothing and it was just like it was essentially somewhere between drinking vinegar and drinking like i don't know like the like cranberry juice that hadn't been sweetened and it was just i mean it was i couldn't i couldn't do it i i rarely if ever i'm like no i i cannot understand but but i don't know who would have liked that wine but i guess the answer is i should have just had them send it to you erica I mean, I am not into those kombucha-style natural wines, for sure. Like, if a if a natural wine is made on the clean side and I'm not getting any sort of those mousy characteristics or those kombucha characteristics, then I'm all about it. But, uh, yeah, I probably would not have enjoyed that wine. I, I just recently discovered the grape and uh, when I was down in Chile this summer. It is pretty delicious. I mean, like, what is it, the, the South American Beaujolais? The problem is that they just don't have enough of it. Totally. Um, you know, but obviously other people are trying to make it, right? So like in California, a bunch of people are, are using the same grape. It's just the mission grape, which is crazy to think that like it was also a grape that was brought over by Spanish missionaries in order to, you know, basically make communion wine. And now a lot of these talented winemakers have realized, hey, if we cultivate this well and we, uh, you know, we use certain methods that we've now learned over the last, you know, few decades, we can actually make really de- delicious stuff with it, which is cool, right? It's it's crazy. No, I was going to say one of the best uh, things about it is like it's one of the few wines that you can get that are old vine wines for like $20. Where else in the world can you get a wine made from old vines that is $20? It's like an insane value. Well, it does kind of highlight one of these interesting things about the history of the grape, both in North and South America, which is like it came over as this idea, yeah, basically to have grapes to make communion wine from. And then in a lot of North America, uh, in California and even in Mexico, was largely either ripped out or ignored because when um, sort of more noble varieties from Europe came over, it was uh, discarded. And that didn't happen as much in South America. And I think there's kind of, yeah, it's an interesting thing. Maybe when the world returns to some semblance of uh, normality, we can we can uh, explore old vines and, and the concept because I do think that, you know, old vines are really interesting. I don't always know that it means that they make better wine. Um, sometimes yes, sometimes maybe. Sometimes I, I can attest to some non-Pais old vine wine I've had that still sucks because in the end, like you, you can leave vines in the ground for a hundred years, but if the place you're growing them isn't a great place to grow grapes, it doesn't really matter. Um, but it, but it is interesting that you're right that it is a really accessible variety and style of wine to to try what it feel what it tastes like to drink um, wines made from grapes that are that from vines that are hundred plus years old because it's true that that is a a very rare uh, opportunity especially with uh, wine from this uh, hemisphere. True. So, buddy, how you holding up? Well, you know, uh, it's been an interesting week plus whatever. Um, not sure that I, uh, that I expected, uh, to have a week quite like this in my life, but, uh, but I'm doing okay. You know, uh, I have been, I, I have the benefit, I guess, maybe it's one of the advantages of, of not living, uh, New York city, uh, or, or adjacent is, uh, I actually have like space to have a pretty good sized wine collection. So, so I'm, uh, I'm not like some people that I know in New York who are like, you know, panicked that in two weeks I'll be out of wine. Um, I have, I have a pretty ample supply. Uh, and my wife and I have been, have been taking the opportunity, not that we needed the encouragement to, uh, to drink a bottle of wine every night, um, with dinner. Uh, but I will say that one thing I've been struggling with is like that feeling that I get when I'm at home too much where I'm like, it's one o'clock. And yeah, maybe it's uh you know a Wednesday, but like 
is there a compelling reason I shouldn't be drinking a margarita <laughs> right now? Uh, so I've so far been able to fend, fend off that instinct, but uh, but it's coming for me. And and uh, I, I do think that, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a challenge for a lot of people, right, to, to deal with just the sort of general um, you know, even if you're working from home, I mean, some people I think who are working from home are are really genuinely still super busy, and you know, th- those can be people in all kinds of industries. And and for them, uh, I actually have a friend who was telling me that he feels like he's working even more than he used to because he's not commuting anymore. So all of his time, basically, from waking up to when he finishes with work, is is work uh, focused. But I think for a lot of us, even with things to do you know, you kind of inevitably end up with a little bit of downtime. Um, at least I feel like I have. Um, and so it's hard to fight that urge to be like, oh man, the, like the fridge is right there. The liquor cabinet is right there. Uh, but so far I'm, I'm, I'm holding steady. I mean, I would say what I've found is, so we, I think either in a good way or a, a bad way, you know, had to get used to this last year when our office wasn't ready in the construction phases. And so we had to all work from home at Team Vine Pair. So we kind of got used to it. But I think what I've found, which is sort of what you're saying, Zach, is like I actually do find it's very hard to turn off um, and that you wind up working like – I remember two nights ago – so was that Monday? I remember Naomi and I were both sitting at the dining room table working, working, working. We looked up and we're like, wait, it's 8 o'clock. Should we cook dinner? Like how did that happen? And the second you wake up, it's yeah. There's there's no like there's no separation of your commute. There's no like, I mean, I really miss Michael Barbaro. Um, <laughs> I haven't listened to the Daily at all because I don't commute anymore. And so I hope that doesn't mean you're not listening to the podcast, everyone. But um, it's it's weird. It's really weird. Erica, what about you? Because you have, I mean, well, you, both you and Zach. I don't have kids, but the two of you do. So I mean, are you finding that there's a a separation between? work for you or is having kids more of a disruption? Is it, you know, are you, are you finding the balance? Like, what's it like for you to work from home? Yeah, I'd say there's no separation uh, of time, you know, that is pretty much not work time. I mean, you know, as, as at VinePair, we've been working kind of around the clock to um, cover the effects of COVID-19 on the drinks industry. And um, that has meant, you know, that we're still posting at 10, 11 p.m., that we're still fielding emails and um, talking to people, sources for stories around the clock. Um, and then when you throw in kids, two kids working, you know, uh, alongside me at the kitchen table trying to do their kindergarten and fourth grade assignments. I mean, I, you know, I, I give it like a week and a half before we get to Lord of the Flies territory. So uh, it's it's a little bit much. Uh, you know, I think... I God bless teachers. I think teachers should get paid a million dollars a piece um, for every year of school, of every work, every year of time served, essentially, because it is not easy. And it's also just not easy to turn off. I think I'm the type of person who just, you know, I have a personality where like if I have free time, I'm working on projects, I'm working on I'm working ahead, I'm trying to get things done, I'm, you know, talking to my uh, writers and editors and trying to make every story better, better. So it's, it is a challenge to have that separation of work and work and home. Totally. So can you talk a little bit about the reporting we've been doing? Cause I know we basically have, you know, insanely shifted gears in terms of what we have been writing about. I mean, obviously we've always tried to cover a, a take a holistic view and large scale view of the world of drinks, whether it's through our cultural coverage or other things, but we've really went basically all in on what's happening in the world now. So I'd love if you could talk a little about that and some of the stories that we've been publishing and then sort of we can take the conversation from there. Since today's topic really is more 
what's happening now than, you know, specifically like, let's talk about whether or not Napa is relevant anymore, which we might get to at some point. Yeah, we, I mean, so, you know, if you go to vinepair.com, you'll see we have a live blog there that is about how uh, COVID-19 is impacting the drinks industry. So we're doing both the live coverage as well as individual stories. Um, And, you know, really what we're looking to do is be a resource for the industry as well as for consumers um, to really understand how uh, businesses are being impacted and both how they can help and how they can get access to funding or grants to help come out of this crisis. Um, so, you know, every everything that we're doing, all of our staff is dedicated to these types of stories. We've talked to people from all parts of the industry, you know, suppliers, importers, distributors, um, restaurateurs, bartenders, you know, you name it, we've, we've talked to them. And what we're hearing really is that it's going to be a very devastating impact for a very long time. And that a lot of businesses will probably never reopen uh, unless they had, you know, pretty significant funding or backing going into something like this. So, you know, this is really a um, dire time for uh, all parts of the industry. Um, you know, from the independent restaurants all the way up to, um, you know, big uh, companies, you know, we have coverage looking and charting, you know, the on the big side, looking at the AB InBevs and the Diageos and what's happening in that space. Um, and then, you know, on the uh, on the ground floor of, you know, what wine bars and restaurants are doing in New York and LA and throughout the entire country, trying to really understand, are there innovations that Uh, operators can follow right now? What are people doing to try to stay afloat, to try to keep their businesses open? So, you know, our our goal, you know, to be a resource, to be a source for ideas and inspiration, and then for consumers to really help um, all of us who love the drinks industry and who love going out uh, to, you know, if you're in a position to donate, to do that. So I think we, what we see in the hospitality industry is that, um, you know, we have a situation right now where uh, entire careers, livelihoods, communities have essentially evaporated overnight, and there's just no telling when that will come back. Um, and so this is a workforce that can't work from home, can't take care of their customers, now can't take care of probably their families and their rent. Uh, so, you know, what we want to, the message we want to get out is, we are a resource. We are here for you. We are dedicating all of our efforts to help uh, keep people informed and um, provide ideas and pathways for recovery when that time comes. Well, as one of those people who uh, <laughs> had his career largely uh, disappear all of a sudden, um, for one, I, I, I appreciate uh, very much have played a very small role in and, and, and really appreciate uh, what's being done at VinePair because, as uh, Adam said at the beginning of the episode, you know, it's a good reminder that um, – all of us are in this and t- uh, together in both within the sort of beverage industry and, and obviously uh, the country and the world as a whole. A, a couple of things I wanted to say, though, that I thought were really interesting about what's come out of this um, period of time uh, and, and may continue to emerge. One of them is uh, this sort of I, this sort of um, conversation that people are having around, um, you know, this idea of um, what does it mean to have your your food and your your drinking life totally homebound right 
And, and for so many people, um, that has gone from being, yeah, you know, all of us in one, probably at one, at one point or another made dinner at home or, you know, at least ordered food in at home, had opened a bottle of wine or a beer or whatever at home. But when, when your life suddenly is, is really confined to your house, as it is for a lot of people listening to this or almost entirely confined to your house, um, it really does kind of force you to, to, it's forced me in a lot of ways to kind of grapple with this question of like, what am I, like how am I going to keep doing the things that bring me joy in life? And and for me, that's obviously a lot of things involving drinking. Um, and I I just I'm I'm so uh, I've been so excited to see you know all the people out there putting out you know tutorials on how to make cocktails and recipes. And obviously, we've done that at Vine Pair and and others have done as well. And and also this sort of ongoing conversation of like how can we keep socializing with with the people that matter to us even if we can't uh, be with them in person. And so obviously you know the other part of that is you know happy hour virtual happy hours and dinner uh, dates and stuff like that. And and I mean it's not ideal for anyone obviously, but it's been really um, heartwarming for me to see. I have to say it has been really cool to see everyone sort of doing their thing, which is awesome. Um, I'm curious though, like from from your perspective, guys, like have have any of you? So at least in New York, we've seen a lot of restaurants and bars. Well, in the tri-state area, sort of go to to go and you know do do cocktails to go and things like that. Um, have you taken advantage of any of it if it has happened? And sort of like, what do you think about it uh, in general? Because for me, like, I I love that it's happening and that like it feels like this really fun thing, but also it, it's kind of destroying me inside because I'm like, this is happening out of desperation because we have no support for this industry in this fucking country. And this is showing to me how much we don't support this industry that is so vital to the, to the, you, to the, you know, the United States. Like what was, it? I think I saw a figure that was like almost 50% of our population could be considered to be employed by the service industry, something crazy like that. Right. It's, it's a huge employer of jobs and like the bone we're throwing to these, to these owners and their employees in a literal time of crisis as well, you can still be open for delivery if you can figure it out instead of like, yeah. look, a bailout's coming. We got you. And and why is the airlines getting bailed out? I mean, like the airlines are getting bailed out, but that is such a small fraction of workers in this country. If you look at the hospitality industry, like you're saying, or the service industry, it really is a massive percentage of people in this country and that there is no framework or support system to uh, really support them is kind of a travesty. Yeah, it's fucking infuriating. Like it, it's one of these things where I was talking to a friend who lives in Atlanta last night who he's in the music business and he was sort of saying, you know, we used to always think we were recession proof and clearly we're learning we're not either. A lot of people are losing their jobs there as well because con- concerts are getting canceled, et cetera. But he was in his car driving to a restaurant because he had read a lot of our coverage and was like, I'm my wife and I have decided we're going to order out every night. But he's like, but we have a kid at home and we're now also saying like, are we putting ourselves at risk? Because we're because a lot of the restaurants in Atlanta aren't delivering. They're asking you to come and pick it up curbside. So, so now I'm driving out every night to pick up dinner curbside to bring home because we want to support our favorite restaurants. We don't, we don't want them to go under, but it's so upsetting because no, like that's all they're being given basically is this, this new license that allows them to do this as opposed to what the government should be saying, which is like, look, a bailout, like we'll, we'll we got you down the road. There'll be a lot of loans. We'll be able to help, et cetera. Like, I just don't get it. Well, there's there's like three different problems here uh, that all kind of work together. So one of them is the like needs of the business, right? Which is like any business, um, but restaurants and and bars in particular tend to be very operate on very thin margins, and and so they don't have the ability to to just sort of keep open for an indefinite period of time when they're running a loss. And so there's the real question, which I think is is a valid one, is basically like 
what number of restaurants can realistically even pivot to delivery and or or pick up or whatever some sort of non you know dine in format and and continue to basically make ends meet and i think the answer is it can't be very many because if they were if delivery and and takeout were that profitable that's all people would do and obviously these are different circumstances and there's maybe more much more appetite for that than than there would be traditionally but there's a reason that like you know sit down service has been the the sort of staple of american dining for a long time so there's the there's the financial aspect of it. Uh, there's also the the other question of this, which is like you know, frankly, and I, and I hate to be the person, like none of us know how long this is going to last. And it's one of those things where if you think about, okay, maybe for a week or two, people are kind of willing to go along with, yeah, I'm going to buy get dinner out every night. I'm going to support, um, you know, other businesses. But but how many people are making enough money where they can, even if it's if it's less expensive than a sit down meal, can really truly be affording to get takeout or delivery food every night? I mean, there there are some people who certainly can, um, but but a lot of us, you know, even if we were inclined to support the industry, even someone like me who has worked in it, you know, I, I we can't, you know, my, my family can't afford to to order, you know, especially like high end takeout uh, on a regular basis that it would that it would take to keep some of these businesses afloat. And so, you know, for us, there, there's that balance of like, okay, well, I certainly want to keep this industry alive because it's been my employer for my adult life, but it's also a, a recognition that you know, if we knew that this was a, a one month long issue that would be one thing but i think you know no one can be under the well maybe hopefully no one is under the misapprehension that this is going to you know there's going to be an end date and everything goes back to normal like at best we're talking about probably many months if not years of a slow recovery and and we're just you know people trying to hang on for now is is fine but i think you know that the conversation that's going to come out of this and it's already starting and and some of the leading lights in food and drink are are talking about it is you know the the industry is going to be fundamentally changed by this and and what that change looks like is still very open to discussion and and interpretation and and changing via events and how people behave but but we're not going to go back to you know February 2020 levels of or or not the restaurant and bar industry, you know, certainly not for a long time and and possibly never. Yeah, I think there's going to be a massive shakeout. Um, I think that there's going to be a lot of people who sort of reevaluate if this is the career that they want anymore. I mean, it's look, I think there's a lot of people who are going to reevaluate after this crisis, whether the place they live is where they want to live anymore. Right. Like I was talking about that with Naomi, my wife, uh, we were like, you know, sort of sitting in the apartment thinking like, huh, like we, we've seen a lot of our friends choose in the last last week, basically, when they knew that they were going to have to work from home, choose to go somewhere else, right? Whether that mm-hmm. was to a friend's house upstate or whether that was like they have kids and they decided which – good. I mean, look, up to them to go to a family members, right, to, to help with the kid. But because they said they didn't want to be in New York during this trying time. And I think that that's making you really evaluate then do you want to be in New York long term? Same for probably people who are in Atlanta, Seattle, et cetera, who might have left. And additionally, I think I've, I've received lots of texts from friends in the industry being like, huh, like I love this industry, but now I'm wondering like, is this what I really want to do? And I think it's going to be re- like really tough. I think you're right, Zach. I don't know if we're going to go back to – a time when people were just opening up crazy random concepts all over the place. And, you know, there, it seemed like every, every new place was, uh, had a hot opening and it just doesn't feel that way right now. And I think that a lot of it is because people in the industry are seeing how insignificant they are to a lot of members of the government. Like, yeah, 
why are they not talking about this? I, I just, I really, and so that's why I did want to focus some of our conversation today is like, how can everyone support them who cares deeply about this industry like we do? Because we're not getting it from our elected leaders right now. So I think the biggest thing first, right, is like anyone who's listening to this podcast, you need to call your your congressmen and your senators. And you need to say to them, where is the bailout for the hospitality industry, right? Yeah, your, exactly. The executive branch is talking very loudly about a bailout for the airlines. Where is the bailout for the hospitality industry, right? What, what is the plan going to be moving forward that is a fundamental part of, to support a fundamental part of American life because they're not getting it. And then I would say to you, if you are listeners and you run a company right now or part of a company that uh, gives, is doing quite well in this time, which we know there are, we know that off-premise alcohol sales have been very high recently. How can you help? Because this is, again, a very important part of our entire industry. A lot of these restaurants are the plate and, and bars are the first places that they discover your products. So I know that we've seen some really cool stuff happen so far, right? Guinness pledged $500,000 to a bunch of bars and restaurants. Jameson did the same thing, right? But what other brands are going to step up and do that? Um, because these are the brands I think that will will gain a lot of love from the industry moving forward by showing that they that that they're that they're there for them. I understand that not every brand has that financial capacity, but those that do, I think it's important to to think about stepping up. Yeah, I think they'll generate a lot of goodwill. Absolutely, Eric. I know you've been working on a lot of other ways, though. So, can you give us some ideas of ways that we can all help? Yeah, definitely. I would say, uh, you know, I'll, I'll list some of the different organizations that uh, we know are um, doing a, a good job and that already have funds in place. Um, no need to take notes. This is all at giveback.vinepair.com. Uh, I'll go through four of the national ones, but on our site, you'll see a lot more na- uh, regional organizations and foundations that you can also give to. Um, and if people in the industry are listening, or if other organizations are listening who uh, would like to be listed, please just contact us at editors at vinepair.com. So the first one I'll talk about is the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation. This is a 501c3. It's created by and for restaurant workers, and it now has a COVID-19 crisis relief fund. So this relief fund is for individual workers, and uh, another part of it is going to zero interest loans to businesses for when they are able to reopen. So that's a a good place to um, donate if you are able to. Um, The next one is the United States Bartenders Guild. That's a nonprofit that operates in 50 different cities around the U.S., and they are doing grants for bartenders and their families who've been affected by COVID-19. You don't need to be a member to apply for a grant. And if you want to uh, donate uh, any funds to this grant, um, know that Jameson uh, Whiskey has pledged 500000 to the fund directly, and then they're also matching up to $100,000 in additional donations. The advocacy group One Fair Wage, they've started an emergency fund to provide cash assistance to tipped workers and service workers who've been affected by COVID-19. The organization is uh, providing these grants to as many eligible workers as possible. So uh, right now they've said that they it's $213 per every eligible worker. And that number was chosen to highlight the current $2.13 sub minimum wage for tipped workers. 
Uh, and then the last one that's a, on our national list is the Dining Bonds Initiative from supportrestaurants.org. And that allows anyone to purchase gift certificates at the participating ref- restaurants for 25% below face value. But then when the restaurants reopen, you they're redeemable for full value. So that allows the restaurants to both receive an influx of cash right now um, and, a, and a guarantee of future business. So those are some of the main funds and foundations that we're highlighting. But again, this is an evolving list. I uh, literally am receiving emails around the clock from uh, organizations who are approaching me saying that they're going to be doing um, wine auctions and um, all sorts of um, different types of uh, fundraisers and so forth that are just coming together. So as the details evolve, we'll be sharing that on the site and we'll have it pinned up at the top of our um, nav, and you'll see it's giveback.vinepair.com. I want to come back to something Adam mentioned a little bit ago, which is sort of this idea of um, how producers, uh, you know, wineries, distilleries, breweries, et cetera, can can potentially give back, both because they may be less affected at the moment, um, because for many of them, they can still sell uh you know, direct to consumer or through retail channels, um, and also because, as as Adam mentioned, there for a lot of people, the the restaurant or bar is the point where they first uh, try the product. And lastly, because frankly, they they have always operated on higher margins than restaurants in the first and bars in the first place. And and I think that you know, obviously, no one sh- there's no there's no uh, there's no virtue in uh, you know drowning yourself to try and save someone else. So so you know, make sure that you're financially positioned that you can help. But I would really call upon those parts of the industry uh, in particular to look at what they can do and whether that's, yeah, fundraisers, whether that's, you know, looking to add staff, if at all possible. And obviously, we all understand that, you know, these are difficult times for everyone. And and certainly, you know, with people mostly having to work from home, there's plenty of those industries that that don't have the capacity to take on additional work from home labor. But, but there are a lot of people out of work. There are a lot of people who have no idea what the future holds for them. And, and that support, I also really hope and and to to emphasize, you know, the best you can do is try to provide uh, support directly to the hourly workers who are most um, at risk here, who have been who have all well, not all, but many of whom have lost their jobs or are and are going to be relying on what are at this point kind of insufficient uh, unemployment benefits. I mean, I'm I'm currently waiting to get uh, my first unemployment check from the state of Washington. And while it's certainly going to be better than um, zero money, uh, it's not anywhere near what I was making um, on a regular basis. And that's how unemployment is designed. It's not designed to be a, an exact um, you know, replacement for lost income. And so you know, for a lot of people in the restaurant industry and in the, in the beverage industry generally, you know, returning to work is going to be challenging. Um, and so obviously, there's a, lot, a much larger, longer uh, sort of societal conversation about what do we do with all these people who are going to need jobs and for whom the industry that they've worked in may not really be a place that they can find a job for a while. But for the time being, you know, those people need to be able to, yeah, you know, pay their rent, presumably buy groceries, you know, uh, do things, you know, do the things that they have to do to, to literally stay alive. And and so the the production side of the industry can, I think, help maybe pick up at least a little bit of that slack, both financially and maybe in terms of work. Couldn't have said it better, man. I think that's that is the perfect place I feel like to wrap up this this uh, episode of the Vine Pair Podcast. Again, we'll be we'll be coming out with much more regular conversations with people in the industry that are affected by COVID nineteen over the next few weeks. Uh, love to hear your thoughts at 
podcast at vinepair.com. Um, and then as always, if you have anything to add, if there's something that you want us to talk about, especially surrounding this crisis and what's happening to all of us in this amazing industry that we all love, please let us know. Um, and with that, I'm going to say, we'll see you all here back next week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please rate us or review us wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps people discover the show. Now for the credits. The Vine Pair Podcast is produced by myself and Zach Jabal and is engineered by Nick Patrie. We're recorded out of Cloud Studios in Seattle, Washington, and also in our New York City headquarters. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the Vine Pair staff who help us conceive of the show every single week. Thanks again for listening.